So Luke chapter 2, verse 1. It came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace. Goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told to them. So Lord, would you just Lord, just add a blessing to the reading of your word? Would you be with us this evening as we just take a look at a few of these things? Would you minister to us, Lord? Have your way this evening. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, a familiar passage, right? A passage that we probably hear every year around this time in December, right? A story that we know all too well, right? The birth of Jesus Christ. The birth of the most significant and important Right, and his birth is so significant. His birth is so important because, right, because through his birth, right, salvation comes, that sins are forgiven, that redemption is made. Psalm 103 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. That's why Jesus came, that's why we celebrate this time of year. Hebrews 10, 17, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Forgiveness, redemption. And so as we look at this passage, as we consider this story, 
there are uh, eight things I'd like to point out about the birth of Jesus. Eight things that we, we see here in this passage that make it so significant. And the first is the timing, the timing of his birth. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. It says, It came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And the census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So the timing of his birth, it says, in those days. In what days? In those days. The days when Rome was rising in its, in its power, rising in its efforts to be the, the world-dominating empire. The days when a man named Caesar Augustus would, would rise to power. See, up until this point, Rome, Rome has been kind of increasing in its, in its effect and its uh, dominating the, the known world at the time, but they had been primarily governing through a senate and, and, and the force of that was the Roman armies and the generals of said armies. You know, but this man, Caesar Augustus, comes on the scene and, and he's kind of being raised up to be the, the guy, right? The Senate kind of backs him and he's going to be the guy, right? But this, this guy was known as um, Gaius Octavius, right? He's this, he's this Roman general, right? He's, he's over the Roman armies and he's kind of being the enforcer to kind of gain control, and, and the Senate kind of backs him and says, no, I think this is the guy we want to stand behind. This is the guy that's, that's going to be ruler. So they give him this name, Augustus. And Augustus means highly favored one, right? So he's the one that's highly favored. He's the one that we're going to back. And so Gaius Octavius then adopts and takes the name of his great uncle, Julius Caesar. So he becomes Caesar Augustus. And so Caesar Augustus, becoming the the single-handed ruler of the Roman Empire, makes this decree, right? Says that everyone needs to go to their hometowns to be registered. And this is something that Rome would do about every 14 years. And they would do this every 14 years for, for two reasons. One, it was every 14 years because they needed to take a census and figure out who they were in control of so that they could basically enlist people into the Roman army. And then obviously the second reason and the obvious reason, right, is so they had a proper census so they could collect taxes. So this wasn't a new thing, but... You know, Caesar Augustus comes on the scene, he's, he's making this decree and saying, you know, everyone needs to go to their hometown and they need to be registered. Which brings us to the second thing we want to consider, and that's not just the timing of his birth, right, during the days of, of Caesar Augustus, during the days of this, this decree that's gone forth that the census be taken, but also the place, right? And the place of his birth in verses 3 through 5 Right, so they all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out to the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, 
So he went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Right? So, so Caesar makes this decree, and so everyone starts going to their hometown, which means for Joseph and for Mary, that hometown, right, is the town of Bethlehem. They go to Bethlehem, this city of David, because Joseph is of the, the lineage and descendants of King David. And so they're traveling. It says there that he's going with Mary, who is with child, right? It says his, his betrothed wife, who is with child. Betrothed is um, basically means that they were engaged. Um, there was... If you know about uh, how uh, Jewish weddings typically worked, especially in this, this day and age, there were really three parts to a Jewish wedding. The first, or a Jewish marriage, the first was the contract. And the contract usually happened between the parents early on while the kids were still young. Basically, the families would say, hey, we should get together. We should join our families. And so they would kind of put the, the children under contract that one day they will get married. And then as they... As they uh, as they grow, they enter and uh, come into adulthood, they enter into the betrothal period, which we would kind of consider the engagement period. Usually lasted about a year, and it was really for, for the, the two to kind of get to know each other, right? They've kind of been, you know, promised to each other, but they don't know each other. So, you know, they want to get to know their, their likes and their dislikes, you know, what's interesting is if, to, if you wanted to break off the betrothal period, you actually had to give the other person a certificate of divorce. They were considered married. They just hadn't had the actual wedding ceremony and they hadn't consummated the marriage in any kind of way. So this is where they're at, right? They're in this betrothal period. They're kind of Joseph and Mary kind of getting to know each other. And now they have to take this journey, this hike to Bethlehem. And it's interesting that they're going to Bethlehem because it's David's lineage, but Mary is also of the lineage of David. You see, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew gives us the lineage of Joseph, and he tracks his lineage through David's line, going through the royal line of Solomon. But in Luke's gospel, Luke also gives us Jesus' lineage, but Luke takes us through Mary's lineage, which doesn't go through the royal line, but goes through David's other son, Nathan. So they both had reason to be in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was five miles south of Jerusalem. Just to give you an idea of where the town of Bethlehem is. But they're not in Jerusalem, are they? No, they're from Nazareth. Nazareth was 70 miles. 70 miles south of Jerusalem. So picture that. Right At the end of verse 5, it says that Mary is with child. In fact, if you have a King James Version Bible, it says she is great with child. Because the Greek would seem to indicate that she's not just pregnant. Right, She's almost ready to give birth. She's probably eight or nine months pregnant at this point. So, I mean, how fortuitous, right? Caesar Augustus makes this decree that forces them to Bethlehem. I mean, after all, think about it. I mean, they don't have cars, right? If they're going to travel, they're traveling by foot or by donkey, most likely. 70 miles 
So picture that. I'm picturing Mary going, no way. There's no way you're taking me on a 70-mile journey while I'm eight months pregnant. No, we'll stay home. Thanks. What a stroke of luck that Caesar Augustus was on the scene. I mean, after all, Micah 5.2, right? Says that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. So it's a good thing Caesar decided to, to make this decree. Or, I don't know, maybe the more likely option is that Caesar, right, is just a pawn in the Lord's hands. And I don't know about you, but that encourages me. It encourages me to know that it's not necessarily up to me. Right? When we see the things going on in the world, to know that God is in control. What a blessing to know that the Lord has it all figured out. Right? And that Caesar's not operating on his own accord. Right? But that he is operating according to the will of the Father. Right? In fact, Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. The king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. You see, Caesar might be, might be thinking that he needs to get an accurate census, right, so he can get his armies the way he wants them, or he can collect the taxes that he wants to collect. But in the bigger picture, God knows that he needs to get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. And he said that this is how it's going to happen. And, and again, I'm, I'm encouraged by this. And I'm encouraged by this because no matter... No matter what the Caesars do, no matter what the Caesars ask, we have to understand that at the end of the day, God is the one pulling the strings. He's the one in control. He's the one that's allowing these things to happen. None of these things take him by surprise. None of these things happen because we somehow got around his will. No, at the end of the day, his will will be accomplished. His plans will be executed. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans 13:1 that Paul says let every soul be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Right? Caesar's in power because God said so. Right? The people in control of our own lives, right? God has placed them there. And, and, and I know I look out on the world landscape today and I wonder, God, what are you doing? <laughs> it doesn't make sense to me. But does it need to make sense to me? Or maybe God is just at work and maybe he's doing something and maybe he has a plan. And maybe I just need to kind of be okay with what he's doing. And maybe... Beyond that, maybe I should be going, God, how can I be used in this? How, how can I serve you and how can I be a part of your story? Because it's his story. 
right? We read that this was his story, right? And it was prophesied, right? And there's no shortage of, of Old Testament verses that promise this very thing. Because, you know, while we might be playing checkers, right, we might only be thinking one move ahead, right? God's up there playing chess, right? He's thinking several moves. He's already planned the last move before the first move was made, right? Right, we have, we have the book. He's given it to us. He's, spoiler alert, he wins, He's got it all figured out because he's the one in control. He's in control of everything, of everyone, all the time. And this, this should give us peace, right? And whatever we're going through, whatever we're facing, whatever the world throws at us, he's in control. He's allowed it to happen. You know, I know... Everyone's tired of hearing about COVID, but it really, COVID really threw something at us, didn't it? You know what I mean? The world hasn't been the same since this all happened. But none of it has happened beyond God's control, right? None of this has happened because he fell asleep at the wheel, because he didn't plan it, because he didn't want it there. The question is, is how do we get involved? What do we do? What is our part in all of this? See, I take so much encouragement from this because Joseph and Mary said, okay, we'll go. She doesn't want to go. But they say, we'll go because we need to be here because God has planned something. God is doing something. So we have the timing of his birth. We have the place of his birth, that being Bethlehem, but we also have the event of his birth, right? The fact that he was born. And the event of his birth really is somewhat uneventful from a human perspective. Look at verses six and seven with me. It says, so it was that while they were there in the, the, sorry, that the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Right, so get the picture. Picture this, right? Caesar said everyone has to be registered. But you can't register where you live. You have to go to your hometown to do that. Well, Bethlehem is, it's called the city of David because that's where David was born. King David. So anyone from David's line has to go to Bethlehem. So picture it, right? This little town is swelling, right? It's filling up with people. And I can only imagine, right, when you're traveling by foot, perhaps by donkey, and you're eight or nine months pregnant, you're probably not moving quite as fast as everybody else is. Perhaps you have to stop a couple times along the way. So when you roll into town, there's nowhere left to stay. Right? All the signs say no vacancy. So what do you do? But we know the story, right? There's no room. So Joseph and Mary go to this, what, 
A-framed barn, right? There's little animal pens. The three wise men are there, right? Anybody else have a nativity scene at home, right? Jesus is there as a little baby, right, wrapped up in these little cloths in this little kind of wooden manger with straw sticking out of it, right? There's this kind of yellow glow coming from the manger. Truth is, it probably didn't look much like that. In fact, it probably didn't look like that at all. In fact, it wasn't probably an actual barn. It was more likely a cave. It's more likely a cave where, where animals were kept, and oftentimes those animals would be birthed. And the manger wasn't this little wooden frame with straw sticking out of it. History tells us that those mangers were almost always made out of stone. And we don't have time to get into it this evening, but the three wise men, they weren't there yet. That happens later. In all reality, it is probably just Joseph and Mary and maybe some animals. They're on their own. Either way, what I find amazing about this picture is the humility that it paints. Right, because if it were me, right, if, if I were God and I was bringing my son, right, like to step out of eternity into time, right, to save humanity, I mean, isn't that something you'd want to like shout from the rooftops, right, like light heaven up, thunders and lightnings and Right, send your host of angels out there to proclaim it to everyone. He's here. No, it was quiet. It was humble. The Savior of the world has just been born, and nobody knows. The humility that he chose to come into the world. Matthew 20, 28 says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. See, the purpose for Jesus coming on the scene wasn't to proclaim himself. It says he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom. Paul tells us in Philippians 2, 7 and 8, but he made himself of no reputation, that he took on the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. See, that's why he came. That's why he's here. Well, we have the event of his birth. We have the timing of it. We have the place. How about the fear? The fourth thing we want to consider about Jesus' birth is that there was fear. Look at verses 8 and 9. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, 
or keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And this is, this is a typical response. You know, when you read through the Bible and you see appearances of angels, it's a pretty typical response for people to be pretty fearful. Seems to be a pretty awesome and amazing thing when an angel shows up in the glory of the Lord. I do find it interesting, though, that, that this angel shows up and appears before shepherds. Why shepherds? You see, culturally, in this day and age, shepherds had a very low class in society. They were kind of on the outskirts. They were kind of dirty. They weren't really highly revered. They had very low status. Again, maybe to point out the fact that Jesus is coming in humility, right? He's not being revealed to high society, right? He's not being born in some palace somewhere. No, he came in humility to the common person. And I like this because Hebrews tells us, right? Hebrews tells us that we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, right? But that he was in all points tempted as we are. Yet, yet without sin. So, it's, so the author of the Hebrews tells us, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Again, this is why he's here. So we can sympathize with him. So we can relate to him. But I think there's more. I think there's more here than just him revealing himself to the lower class, if you will. Because what does the Bible tell us? What does the Bible say about shepherds? What does the Bible say about Jesus and shepherds, right? Several times. Peter says in, in 1 Peter 5, 4, that Jesus is our chief shepherd, right? He is our chief shepherd and that he comes for the sheep, right? In 1 Peter 5, 4, he come, the chief shepherd comes for his sheep. Or how about in Hebrews 13, 20, where it says that he is the great shepherd and that he lives for the sheep. So he comes for the sheep, he lives for the sheep, how about John 10, 11? He is the good shepherd, right? So he's the chief shepherd. He's the great shepherd. John tells us he is the good shepherd, and the good shepherd dies for the sheep. The good shepherd dies for the sheep. And then in Ezekiel 34, we're told that he is God's shepherd, and God's shepherd brings peace to the sheep. He's the chief shepherd. He comes to us. We're the sheep. He comes to us. He's the great shepherd. He lives for us. He's the good shepherd because he dies for us. And he's God's shepherd. He's God's shepherd because he brings us peace. He brings us peace. So we have to consider 
Not just the fear that surrounded his birth, but also the joy, right? We talk about this time of year, right? It's a time of joy. It's a joyous occasion, right? The joy that was brought by his birth. Look at verses 10 and 11. The angel said to them, right, talking to these shepherds, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Right, so these angels talking to these shepherds says, Do not be afraid. This is good news. This is a good thing that I'm here. Because I bring you good news. I bring you good tidings. Right? It's, this is a joyful occasion. Why? Because Jesus has come to offer forgiveness. Forgiveness of sins. The hope of eternal life. Notice the end of verse 10 there. To all people. You know what the Greek word all means? It means all, <laughs> everyone, no one excluded. Listen, this isn't just for the town of Bethlehem. This isn't just for Israel. Jesus came for everyone. And that encourages me because that means that's you and me. It's all of us. We are included in all. And that is joyful. That's exciting. Jesus offers eternal life to everyone. It's not exclusive, it's inclusive. 1 Timothy 2.4 says, Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. John 3.17, right? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, Right, but that the world through him might be saved. The world, everyone, all people. Second Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Listen, this gospel message is for everyone. He came. He was born for everyone. And that is a reason to be excited. And these angels are telling these shepherds, don't be afraid. This is a joyful occasion. I bring you good tidings. There's no wonder. There's great joy that Jesus has been born. Right? The angels, the Savior is here. Well, We have the timing of his birth, we have the place, we have the event itself, we have the fear, we have the joy surrounding his birth. What about the praise to God, right? The praise that God receives because of Jesus' birth. Look at verses 13 and 14. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill to men. Notice how heaven is watching. Heaven is paying attention. Right? A multitude of heavenly hosts start praising God. Why? 
Notice what it says. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace and goodwill to men. Because only the Messiah, only Jesus can bring peace. Only Jesus brings goodwill to men. There is no peace treaty. There is no legislation, right, that's going to bring peace, that's going to bring goodwill to men. I mean, I'm sure world leaders and politicians will always tell us and promise us, this is good for you. This is why we need to pass it. No, this is what brings peace. This is what brings goodwill to men. Right, what does Isaiah 9, 6 say, right? The verse that's on most of our Christmas cards, right? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulders, right? His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Peace. His name will be called Prince of Peace. Because let's face it, sometimes as we navigate through this world, we navigate through this thing we called life, it doesn't feel peaceful all that often, does it? But he brings peace. He is the Prince of Peace. In fact, someone once said that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and if you remove the N, he becomes the price of peace. And that's the truth of it, isn't it? He is the price of peace. If we want peace in our lives, we have to go through him. He paid for it. He paid for it with his life. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. And so as we consider the birth of Jesus, we also have to consider the proclamation of his birth. Right? That he was proclaimed. Verses 15 through 17. So it was, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let's now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste. They found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. So this angel comes, right, and kind of scares these shepherds out in the field tending their flocks. And the angel's like, no, 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 this is a good thing. A child has been born. So after all the commotion fades, right, these shepherds are kind of like, well, we need to go check this out. In fact, back in verse 12, it tells them, this is the sign to you. The angels tell the shepherds, this is the sign, This is all the information you need, right? A child has been born. You're going to find him wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And so they say, let's go to Bethlehem and let's see this thing. Let's check it out. And so as they get there, right, the shepherds find Jesus right there in Bethlehem. Again, probably in a cave, right, wrapped in swaddling clothes. Interesting, swaddling clothes are burial clothes, Right, wrapped in burial clothes in a manger, a feeding trough, a stone feeding trough. This is how they find Jesus. But I love this, right? 
They found him there lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, right, they got eyes on Jesus. They made it widely known. Right? These shepherds couldn't hold it in. They couldn't hold it back. They couldn't keep from talking about it. Everyone needs to know that Jesus is here. That the Savior has come. You know, it's, when you go through the New Testament, when you study it, when you look at people interacting with Jesus, that's kind of what happens, isn't it? Everyone wants to talk about him. You know, I was thinking about Andrew, right, the disciple, always bringing people to Jesus. Or how about the, the Samaritan woman, right, the woman at the well, right? She runs back into Samaria, right? She needed to tell all of Samaria, right, about the man that told her everything she had ever done. Right? Everybody needed to know about Jesus. Right? He needs to be proclaimed. Right? How, about, how about the demon-possessed man in the Gadarenes, right? where he's, he gets, Jesus delivers him? And he's like, let me follow you. And Jesus is like, no, you stay here. Why? Why? Because he proclaimed Jesus. Right? Because he needs to be proclaimed. He needs to go forth. His message needs to be heard. Do you have that kind of passion for Jesus? You know, one of, my fa- one of my favorite passages is in Jeremiah chapter 20. Because Jeremiah has been ministering. He's a prophet of the Lord. He's been ministering with no effect. Right? Like he, there is no fruit in Jeremiah's ministry. When you get to chapter 20, Jeremiah has reached the end of it. And he basically turns in his resignation and says, God, I'm done. I'm over it. He says, I'm in derision daily. People plot my life. I get thrown in ditches and left for dead. I'm done with this. And my favorite part is when you get about halfway through that passage, Jeremiah says this. He says, the word of God was shut up in my bones like a burning fire. I was weary of holding it back and I could not. Man, do we have that kind of passion for Jesus? Where it's just got to come out. I got to say it because it's just there. That's, these shepherds are like, everybody needs to know about Jesus. He needs to be proclaimed. Do we have that kind of passion for his gospel, for who he is, for what he's done in our lives? To be able to say, the saving work that he's done in my life, everyone needs to know. Because everyone needs to experience what I've experienced in him. Well, these shepherds felt that way. And as these shepherds are sharing Jesus, the the last point, and I'll wrap it up with this, is the marveling. The marveling at Jesus' birth. Look at verses 18 through 20. It says, all those who heard it. Right? So these shepherds are out there proclaiming Jesus, that they have found him in the manger, just as the angel had said. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. It says there that Mary kept these things and pondered them in her heart. But the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told to them. They marveled, right? Mary's kind of there, kind of marveling in her own way, kind of privately Right, because Mary's probably, most scholars believe that she was somewhere between 15 and 18. Probably closer to 15. Right? 
just this young girl, just had this amazing, right? The Lord appears to her, tells her, you're going you're gonna to give birth to the Son of God. I'm sure there's some things to ponder there. <laughs> right? How do, you, how do you deal with that? And I don't know, maybe we'll get a chance to ask Mary one day. But everyone else is marveling at what the shepherds are saying. And it's a marvelous thing. It's a marvelous thing that God would step out of eternity into time, right? To come in the form of a humble man to redeem wretched mankind, to redeem us. So as we consider these things, as we, as we bow our hearts, as we bow our heads this morning before the Lord, the question that I have for you is do you have this great joy? Do you have that peace in your life, that peace that only Jesus can provide? I ask you this morning, are you marveling at Jesus, at who he is, at what he has come to do. Listen, time is too short. And I don't know, I don't know what tomorrow holds. I know who holds tomorrow. And maybe this, mor- uh, maybe this evening, maybe you're here in this room, maybe you're listening online, And maybe you're thinking to yourself, I I haven't experienced that peace that you're talking about. I don't have that rest that you say is promised. I don't have that joy that everyone says this time of year should bring. May I encourage you this evening, do not put it off another day. Don't wait for tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation that there is hope of eternal life in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. And may I encourage you this morning that Jesus is before you with open arms, ready to give you that peace, ready to give you rest, ready to give you a hope of eternal life. All you have to do is ask. All you have to do is come to him and embrace him. Right Right here, right where you're at. If you're, if you're here in this room or if you're, if you're at home, you're just somewhere with your phone listening or watching, right where you're at, come to Jesus. And if that's you, if that's you this evening, if you feel like your heart is on fire and you just you need more, telling you Jesus is what you need. And so if if this is you this evening, would you pray this prayer with me? Would you join with me in praying this prayer? Would you come to him and would you say, Lord Jesus, for too long I've kept you out of my life. For too long I have avoided. But this evening, right now, I want to acknowledge that I am a sinner and that I cannot save myself 
Yet no longer will I close the door to you. I hear you knocking. And so by faith, I want to receive your gift of salvation, that I'm ready to trust you as my Lord and my personal Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to the earth, that I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that you were raised on the third day. Thank you for bearing my sins on that cross, for giving me the gift of eternal life. I believe that your words are true. Would you come into my heart this evening? Lord Jesus, would you be my Savior? Amen. If that's you this evening, if you've prayed that prayer, if you meant it in your heart, I just want to welcome you into the family of God. 